Well, let's turn again to Acts chapter 2 and uh, the uh, conclusion of the speech of Peter in verses 40 and 41. Acts 2, 40 and 41. With many other words he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Well, you and I are being bombarded with uh, messages from the political parties in the light of the coming general election. Seven of the party leaders recently debated on television for two hours. We want to save you from making the wrong choice, they all said, warning us and pleading with us to be aware of the fate that would be ours if we supported any other party than theirs. They wanted to save us from making a monumental mistake. And every Christian is also very interested in saving people from making a very bad decision with their lives. You remember that when Mary discovered that she was to have a baby boy, that a messenger from the Lord came to her husband Joseph, and uh, he told Joseph, what the name of the baby should be. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. The very name of the one we follow means Jehovah saves. His name describes his vocation. When he told us what his purpose was in coming into the world, he said, the Son of Man came to seek and to save those who were lost. That's why he left heaven. That's why he was born in Bethlehem stable and lived for 30 years in Nazareth and was baptized and preached the Sermon on the Mount and healed the sick and taught 12 apostles and died an agonizing death on the cross and rose on the third day. It was to save lost sinners. He once spoke to his disciples and he said to them, These things I said unto you that you might be saved. When he hung dying on the cross, even his enemies, taunting him and yet looking back over his life, said, he saved others. And they thought of the change that he had accomplished in people who were possessed with evil spirits and were dying men and women. That's why he came into the world. The most uh, familiar text in the Bible tells us, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Peter told the people of Jerusalem that there was one name under heaven given amongst men, whereby they must be saved. And the Apostle Paul told Gentile believers... What a change them. He said, by grace are you saved. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And when the man in charge of the jail in Philippi was in suicidal despair and cried out, what must I do to be saved? Paul said to him, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. So the Lord Jesus Christ has this lovely title of saviour. At his birth, a messenger from God told the disciples, the shepherds in the fields, 
Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And we Christians today are looking for the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because John tells us that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And Jude commends us to uh, only wise God and Savior. So you can see how fascinated we are as Christians with this whole concept of being saved, having a Savior, knowing and experiencing salvation for ourselves. Firstly, I want to ask, what are we saved from? The whole country is being stirred up to deliver itself from a bad choice. And there are many people that think just being left alone, switching off the, the news and not listening for the next uh, month will be the way that they can be saved from politics and politicians. And they don't want us to knock on their doors and speak to them. They want to be saved from religion. Leave us to ourselves and we will be all right. They believe in being saved by being ignored. Other people are very interested in the subject of human behavior, and there's a very specialized vocabulary which is used to express man's assessment of the kinds of lifestyles that promise salvation. We are familiar with the concept of salvation from immorality and inappropriate behavior and crime. The Marxist promises to save men from alienation. And the existentialist promises he will save people from inauthentic existence. And the Greens will save the world from ecological neglect. And in these words and by these phrases and emphases that men use to express their own evaluation of the salvation that they have to offer to the world, to this generation. Now in our text... We read how Peter was preaching to the crowds in Jerusalem, and he was very concerned for them. We have the briefest summary of his sermon in Acts chapter 2, and we are told then, in the words that I've read to you, how with many other words he spoke to them. This is just a summary. He spoke and spoke to them and heard rumbles and questions, and he went on and on um, contacting them and speaking to them about his message. And he warned them that if they went on unforgiven and alienated from God for what they had done in crucifying his son, that it was ruinous. And he pleaded with them to turn around, to change. And then the words of our text are a, a summary and a climax of his message to them, words inspired by the Spirit of God at this moment and given a rare impact and power, as he said to them, save yourselves, be saved from this corrupt generation. So Peter's concern on this great day was not Roman colonization and the occupation of Roman troops and legionnaires in all the major cities. It wasn't the abuse of women. It wasn't false religions or statism or psychological self-abuse. He spoke of one great phrase of they being saved from this corrupt generation. 
Don't go with the crowd, he was saying to them. There's a broad road and it leads to destruction. And many are, are walking along it quite blithely. Don't go with them. He looked at them and he told them that in the sight of God they were corrupt. That they weren't straight, the authorized version familiarly translates it, an untoward generation. They were crooked. Later, uh, Paul writes to the Philippians Christians and he urges them to become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and perverse generation. It's the exact term that uh, Peter uses here. So Peter wasn't in the business of stroking their affections and winning them over and making them his buddies and telling them that God loved them and had a wonderful plan for their lives. They had to face up to their state, their condition in the sight of God and acknowledge that God was right in how he judged them. They had to see themselves as they really were in God's assessment, they were crooks. The whole generation, many of the people listening, were disgusted with their chief priests and disgusted with the butchery of Golgotha that they had nailed three men to crosses and let them die, especially the good and helpful Jesus of Nazareth. And they said, uh, that's what crookedness is. That's what sin is. Uh, When men behave like that, we wouldn't behave like that. But Peter says, the generation in which we live, the whole generation from the youngest child to the oldest surviving person, they are all perverse. They are all crooked. Well, let me ask secondly then, how are we a crooked and depraved generation? Firstly, we are crooked inwardly. Now, of course, our generation of 20th and 21st century men and women have been guilty of terrible acts of murder and torture and neglect and violence and cruelty. And we are inundated with such examples of man's depravity towards our fellow men. We are confronted with it. The television news, the radio news, the newspapers tell us about it. It is all so external. People are concerned just about outward actions, about observable human behavior. And of course that is immensely important. But God is far more rigorous. He looks not simply on what is outward and observable. He goes in and in to the depths of the human spirit and the human soul. And he says sin is there, not only in our actions and in our words, but in our thoughts and our ambitions and our desires and our emotions and our aspirations. The Lord Jesus said that it wasn't simply in the substances that men took and swallowed that entered their bodies that they were corrupted by. But they were defiled by what came out from what was in them already. And that the real problem was with the heart of man, not by outward sacrifices and washings and libations. It is not that the human action has missed its target, or that a human word has missed its target, but the human heart, it isn't straight, it's crooked, it's deceitful, above all things, it's desperately wicked. 
you can parallel numbers of the Ten Commandments with ancient moral codes. You can go to the world's religions and find many great examples of the moral law in them. But there is one thing that is almost peculiar to Scripture, and it is this, thou shalt not covet. In other words, God is looking within mankind at the aching longings and yearnings and frustrations that come because we don't have what another boy has, another girl has, another family has. The itch, the frustration for not having what belongs to someone else. So the Bible isn't simply listening to what we say or watching what we do. It is going into the wellsprings of human behavior. And it is saying, covetousness is a sin. It might never lead to human speech. It might never result in a change in human behavior. But the sinful desire for what God has forbidden you, the envy we feel towards the possession of others, the illegitimate lustful ache, And it may never register on our faces. There may not be a raised eyebrow. There may not be a twitch on our brows at all. And it may never injure another human being. And yet the desire itself is crooked. And I think we are so inclined to think that as long as we can keep a lid on sin, as long as our names are never in the papers as long as it doesn't show and it doesn't speak and it doesn't act, then it isn't sin. But the New Testament says the very desire to sin is sin. The illicit lust, the inordinate longing, that is itself sin, because sin is something inward. We come again to the emphasis that our Lord Jesus makes on the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. And Jesus says that doesn't just involve assaulting another person physically and violently. It doesn't simply refer to muggings and domestic violence and manslaughter and assassinations, but it refers to hatred. It refers to anger and contempt. The covetous thought, the malicious and malevolent thought, the hate-filled thought, these things never speak. And we may keep the lid on that well of iniquity, But inside we can be burning with all sorts of fury and bitterness. But there are restraints of respectability. There are restraints of church membership. And there is an awareness of the criminal law. And it restricts our wicked responses that well up within us. But Christ says that to be angry is a sin. To hate someone is a sin. It may never lead to actual Violence or assault, it may never lead to a single manifestation on your face of what your heart feels. But the anger and the hatred, these are in themselves sin. Our Lord does the same thing with adultery. It isn't a question of the actual act. It's a matter again of the unlawful desire of the lust of the longing for what God forbids. And it may never express itself in a touch or in a word. And yet the existence of that thing in the heart is sinful in and of itself. So we've got to say to ourselves, 
that being crooked is not simply a matter of words, not simply a matter of actions. It's also a matter of what lies in our hearts. This generation is a youth-centered generation. It's a child-centered generation. And the great mistakes that uh, youth leaders and clergymen make is to think that it's only the actual deed and the actual word that is crooked. But it is not so. It is a sin to covet. It is a sin for children to be dissatisfied with what they've got, with a heart that pulls on the mother's apron or the father's trousers and says, let me have, give me, give me, give me, more, more, more. And that is sin. The heart that is angry, the heart that is hateful, the heart that is malicious, a crooked heart. And we have to learn to go to God. And we have to say to God at the end of the day as we think of what we've been and what we've thought and what we've said, Lord, have mercy on me for my sin. My only hope is cleansing through the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son. Lord, I've had crooked thoughts and crooked ambitions and crooked longings. So uh, uh, the generation was crooked inwardly. And secondly, it was crooked emotionally. And how much is there in our emotional lives, those areas of human life which psychiatrists claim has its own problems, how much is there in our affections that are deranged and deranged sinfully? How much sinful worry is there? How much sinful depression is there? How much sinful fear is there? How much sinful paranoia is there? The feeling that everybody is against us and we can't say a word or do an action that doesn't bring disapproval of someone or other. The feeling that men don't think as highly of me as I deserve and merit being thought of. How much schizoid withdrawal from reality are we ourselves guilty of? How often do we react excessively emotionally to certain situations? Or how often do we react insufficiently emotionally to certain situations? We strike a pose. We are Mr. Cool. We are lukewarm. We see violence. We hear of tragedy. And we lack empathy with those who are hurting deeply. We refuse to be moved as we ought to. And that is as sinful as unbounded sorrow and unrestrained depression with which we sometimes confront our personal providences. We are often guilty of an extreme which is the opposite of excess. That our hearts don't break when they ought to break. And that is as bad as the heart that wails when it should be restrained. Weep not for me, Jesus stopped. And he turned to a group of women that were wailing for the young men being killed that day. Don't weep for me, he said. Weep for yourselves. Weep for your children. And so we find this tremendous emphasis upon crookedness as something inward. And universal, generation-wide. Sin not merely of our words and actions, but a whole generation confronted with sinful hearts and sinful intentions and sinful emotions and aspirations. Thirdly, we are crooked through sin's lordship over us. 
we boast of our liberty from believing in God. Our freedom from the book, from the day, from his worship and his law and his people. And yet we've not been liberated. We've not found true freedom. We've not discovered peace and joy on our own terms. The Bible says this generation, every generation, is enslaved to sin. We are under its dominion. We are under its headship. We're in its gang. You remember the slave. He had no time of his own. He didn't have Sundays and Saturdays free just to do his own thing. He had no time of his own, no property of his own, no talents of his own, no wealth of his own. He had no voice of his own. Not a single moment in which he could say, well, this is mine to do with as I wish. There was never such a moment. He was always under his master. His every thought, his every talent, his every possession was his master's. He was his possession. Men, all men in our generation are owned by Lord Sin. Sin controls them 24-7. Sin is an absolute despot. And so subtly does it exercise its lordship that it gives to every person the impression that they are free. That they are in charge. That really they are the master of their fate and they are the captain of their souls. It tells them that. That they have freely decided on themselves they are not going to do anything with Jesus. And that's their choice, they think. There was once a snake charmer in a circus and the highlight of his act that he gave a a command then to a bow constrictor that was in a basket. And the lid of the basket opened and the, the snake came out and saw its master and slithered along the floor and it coiled itself round and round and round and round. And the audience was breathless as the snake went round and round and looked, looked at its master. And then, uh, in the hearing of the hushed audience, he gave a word. And the snake slowly uncoiled itself and dropped to the floor and slithered back and entered the basket once again. And then one day, at the highlight of his act, he gave the command to the snake. But the snake merely tightened its grip. And he addressed the snake more urgently. But it tightened and tightened its hold on the man, in spite of all its cries. He could suck in no air to shout for it to obey him. And he crushed the man to death. And that is sin. We think we are in control of our lives and our tastes. And then one day we discover the truth. That all along we were enslaved to the sin that was our Lord and was in control of us and was guiding us. Sin says to us, ignore God. Ignore his son. Ignore his word. Ignore his people. Never pray. Never trust Never repent, never think of death, never go to church on Sundays. And we're saying, yes, yes, sir, please, sir, as you will, sir. And we look at the poor suckers who trust in God and worship him. And we think what slaves they are. But in reality, it's us that's yielded to sin. 
yielded our desires, yielded our silences, yielded our talents, our indifference, our actions. For the scripture declares the whole world is a prisoner of sin. Galatians 3.22 Fourthly, this generation is crooked and perverse in every part of it. We're not as bad as everyone else. We don't behead men and video the process. We're not all animals. We are not all devils. We're not as depraved as we could be. We're not as depraved as we will be. But sin has affected every part of us in the sense that when God looks at us, when God scrutinizes and searches us, God can see no affection, no organ, no faculty of heart or soul or mind that has escaped from the influence that sin has. Just a few grains of arsenic and the whole glass is affected. It's become an arsenic poison. It's affected all that's in that glass. And when God looks at us, he sees that nothing has escaped the influence of sin. Our whole nature is corrupt. Our whole heart is faint. And the whole head is sick. And man in his mind and in his desires is putrid. There's not a point of me, not one part of me, that I can say, well, this is sin-free. This is a sin-free zone in me. I'm completely lacking in original righteousness and my entire generation with me. And I would say to you, are you hearing me? Isn't that immensely offensive? In my pride, can I accept that? That every part of my soul is depraved? That my righteousnesses, my righteousnesses, the way I care for my children and my frail wife and my parents, that my righteousnesses are as filthy rags in God's sight. I, I don't do them purely and holily, but grumblingly and frustratingly. And sin affects every part of me. And this is the diagnosis of God of our generation. The whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. Let me remind you of the human intellect. Well, our generation protests. That's not crooked. That's escaped depravity. But surely there, above all, there is crookedness. You consider the history of science. And the history of man who imposes his own theories and worldviews upon generation after generation. Consider our generation now in the 21st century in Europe, Scandinavia, down to the tip of Italy, across to Greece, over to Ireland. All the great countries that make up the citadel of uh, Christian civilization. And how anti-God is the spirit of our age. Let's remember that even our powers of observation and our powers of logical deduction and analysis, that these are subject to 
an anti-God spirit. They are subject to human depravity. You've heard the phrase that the camera can't lie, but you've seen photographs. Photographs that glorify sensuality and glorify violence and make it seem so exciting. There is no such thing as an unbiased mind. There's no such thing as neutral observation because sin has impaired and destroyed our generation's logical powers. It has impaired our generation's powers of observation. It has removed the possibility of impartiality so that every single generation is prejudiced. Every single generation is anti-God. Every single generation is unrighteous and unholy. Every single generation will look across Cardigan Bay and will see the glories of the sunset and the beauties of the mountains all around us and a rainbow and the sky in all its beauty. And they will see there the existence of God, the glory and power of God, and yet they hold down that truth. They clamp down on it in their unrighteousness. They will suppress it. They will distort it. They will wrest the truth in their own, to their own destruction. And we have to lay an axe to the root of the pride of intellect and the pride that we have in our contemporary culture and our breakthrough and our pride in scientific and medical achievements and remind ourselves that there at the very heart of human logic and at the very basis of human experimentation and verification, man's very acts of observation are those in which he is serving his Lord's sin. You say, but hasn't the human conscience escaped? No, says the New Testament. The Jews listening to Peter had taken Jesus of Nazareth. They had taken him to the top religious court in the nation, led by their chief priests. And they had passed the verdict that he was worthy to be tortured to death. They had crucified him in conscience. They had killed him on theological grounds. They had murdered him and they thought that they were doing God a service. They persecuted his servants and harassed them and abused the members of God's church as they are doing today. They are shooting them. They are beheading them. They are raping them. They are committing every kind of abomination on their persons and they are claiming that they are doing their God a favor. Because the light that is in them, that light is darkness. The conscience is no safe guide. Conscience is crooked. The conscience of the cannibal, he does it all in conscience. The tremendous abominations of Islam and Hinduism, all done in conscience. The conscience of the religious inquisition. They believed that doing those things, burning men alive, they were doing God service. Our intellects are crooked. Our consciences are crooked. Perhaps most of all, our wills are crooked. You remember what Paul tells us, that the good he would do, he didn't do. There was a, a conscious desire, an appreciation of what was good. But there was no strength of will, no willpower we say, to carry that intention to its legitimate conclusion. The projected enterprise fizzled out. 
and wasn't fulfilled. The will is enslaved. Our generation's greatest problem is the bondage of the will. You have our Lord's tremendous word again. I would have gathered you. I'd have spread out my wings and I would have warned you to come and I would have protected you from those that would destroy you. I pleaded with you. I offered you my, my secret place of safety. And you wouldn't. You said, we won't come to you. We won't be gathered by you. You remember, why is our generation so predominantly non-Christian? Why have people stopped going to church? Has there been some scientific discovery that shows the error and the deception and the false nature of the life and teaching and the actions of Jesus Christ? Has there been one? There are people in our congregations and they know verses and they know catechism answers. Why aren't they Christians? And we have the audacity sometimes to say that it's God's fault. That we're really seeking. But God has not given us a certain experience. We'd like to believe, but we haven't had any encouragement from God. We're simply unconverted. We're waiting to be converted. The Bible never describes our generation as unconverted. It is a disobedient generation. It is a defiant generation. God addresses it and he says, Whosoever will may come. But the whole generation is unwilling to come in faith and repentance to the Son of God, Jesus Christ. It is not ignorance that is keeping people from Christ. It is not lack of authority to come to Christ. They lack no warrant to trust in him and believe that he will hear them when they say, please save me. Quite simply, the generation will not come. Just as they are to Jesus, just as he is. Their refusal is a matter of their wills. Because the will is the citadel of the soul. And that is where sin reigns. And that is where men are willing for sin to reign. It remains in charge of their lives. Fifthly, a crooked generation is a lost generation. We're told that Peter warned them. He warned them. But Peter, we're told, pleaded with them to save themselves. In other words, they were in, they were in real danger. I couldn't see it. Like you see a person wandering out into the street and there's a car coming and you warn them. Because they can't see the danger that you can see. And he beseeches them to see their plight. Don't ignore, he says, what I've said to you. The wages of sin is death. In other words, you defy God. And there are terrible consequences. You serve sin. And the wages you get are destruction. 
We live in a moral universe. It's overruled by the law of God. Your conscience is bearing witness. It is saying to you now, it's true. What the preacher is saying to me, it's true. It is all true. You sow the seed of sin and you reap the judgment as the harvest. You sow a wind of defiance and you reap a whirlwind of destruction. You sin and you answer because there's always the harvest. It's not just always the sowing, always the sowing, always the watering, but one day it will grow. One day the harvest will come. God's reapers will come. They'll put in the scythe. There's a time when God sends in the bill. There's going to be an account rendered for your life. The wages of sin is death. For the whole generation who hate God and defy the offer of salvation through him, there's a solemnity and there is an unavoidability of physical death. Of a time when the last flicker of electrical activity in our brains will cease. When the last breath will be breathed out and we'll never breathe in again. When the very last beat of this faithful old heart that has pounded away and driven the blood around our bodies and then it stops. And then there's what the book of Revelation calls the second death. And he describes it as a lake that burns with fire. The bonfire of the vanities, the cesspit of the universe, the cosmic incinerator into which one day God will gather all the refuse of the world. Jesus spoke about it. He spoke about it so tenderly. But he spoke about it more than anybody else in all the Bible of the place where the false prophet is, where the beast and the dragon is, and where everyone will be unless they save themselves from the crooked generation that are all defiantly on the broad road that leads to destruction. I'm not going to analyze it. The symbols themselves are eloquent enough and moving enough. There's a place where the smoke of their torment Ascends day and night, forever and ever. And that is the logic of sin. The divine response to persistent impenitence and final disobedience. That God delivers to us the final account. We are weighed in the balances and we are found wanting. And these things I would suggest to you are the abiding characteristics and the distinctive emphases of a crooked and perverse generation. And you check. Now, is this right? Is it, is it possible for you to check what I'm saying? That you go to your newspapers this week, or you switch on the television news. And you will read such things as four gunmen entered a college and they singled out Muslims and they shot dead students, men and women, 18, 19, 20 years of age. And they killed 150 of them. They didn't shed a tear. Or what is presented to us of 
ISIS murderers in Syria and Iraq and their abominable deeds. Or the mutilation of millions of young girls. Or I have lived in an age in which gas chambers wiped out millions of Jews. And the perpetrators of those events sang their Christmas carols and listened to their great composers, Bach and and Beethoven and Mozart and Mahler. Or there is the domestic violence in too many homes. There are the murders of the unborn children, tens of thousands next week, this month. Millions over the last 40 years. And not one word to be spoken in its defense. Because if there is, then we stand where Paul says the depraved and the abandoned ultimately stand. We are worse than those who do such things. If we take pleasure in them or secretly admire them or shrug in indifference about them. But there's not only the defiled history of my generation, there's my history. There's my life. There's the file that God has kept on me. There's my biography. What do I mean? Well, am I saying to God, yes, but would I dare speak like that? That I hear God saying, "This this is your problem. This is your condemnation. And I say, yes, but every mouth stopped. And the whole world guilty before God. My life inexcusable. My thought life. My fantasies. My imaginations. My emotions. My resentment. My self-pity. The way I treat those who love me. The most, my words, silly words, hateful words. By our mouths we are condemned. What a barometer of our hearts are the things that we say hastily and sharply and impatiently. And my actions, what I've done to my nearest and dearest. And I did them. I don't need to think of Boko Haram. I don't need to think of ISIS I don't need to think of Auschwitz to discover what sin is and why I need to be saved from it. It's on my record. And my only plea is, Lord, my life is indefensible. Lord, cover it. Lord, save me. And the need was so great that it cost God his son, his only son, that he gave him up and he willingly came And he entered this world, born of a woman, living in humility, humbling himself even to the death of the cross, in order to save me, save a wretch like me from my sin. He took frail flesh and blood and lived in this world and loved and loved God and loved his neighbor as himself. That's why he came. That's an expression of the nature of who God is. That somehow without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for my sin. And he came and he stood in the majestic rectitude 
of the holy revulsion of God against all that defies him. That he suffered the wrath of God against us. He entered into that condemnation. And Christ paid the wages. Not me. He paid. He paid the whole price. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of my peace was laid upon him. With his stripes I was healed. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. He was delivered up and spared not that I might be delivered and that I might be spared. And not only, but the whole new generation of the inhabitants of the new heavens and the new earth. So my plea, as I hear the words of warning and the entreaty to be saved, my plea is guilty. Guilty as charged by God. Lord, cover my life. Lord, save me. And when God gives me permission to speak, all I can say is, I wish it wasn't me. And can we get away from excusing our sins and our attempts to rationalize them and tell God that if he knew all the circumstances, then uh, he'd know that uh, we were justified in doing what we did. Can we get back to what is a sinner's only plea? That is, his mouth closed and his head bowed and his breast beaten. And he says, I abhor myself. I abhor what those men did in the college in Kenya. I abhor what they did in Nigeria in kidnapping those 150 teenage girls. I abhor it. I abhor those who lashed and beat and crucified and taunted my Savior, Jesus Christ. But I abhor myself. I abhor myself. Please do what these people did. Do you see what they did? They listened. They understood. They agreed. They accepted his message. Luke tells us. That message came to them. Of their crookedness. And and they accepted it. He said yes. It's true. We are depraved. We are crooked. We are corrupt. Yes. Please save us. Lord Jesus, save us. Jesus, save me. Jesus, save us. Save save us, Jesus. Lord, bless your word now. Come with saving power. You promised to be where two or three gather in your name. Well, please, please be here. Please sit next to us now. Walk these aisles. Touch our hearts. Open our minds. Arouse and purify our conscience. Help us not to kick against the goads of a, of a hurting conscience, but to bow and say, yes, we're guilty as charged. Save us, Lord, we pray. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat>